Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 38 this morning, and you can find it on page 929, 930 there in the Pew Bibles. Friends, we all need grace. We need the grace that changes, the grace that transforms, the grace that gives comfort, the grace that that gives and sustains life, the grace that strengthens and upholds us, the the grace that, that causes us to be able to endure even at the loss of loved ones and people that we've relied upon uh, to hold and hold dear. We need God's grace that enables us to finish the race, to run this course that we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to persevere to the end. I think deep down we know that if we are going to live this life, if we are going to make it, if we are going to stand firm in the Lord from this day until that one, we need God's grace every day to persevere to the end. Now we know that in the gospel, we have received grace, we have received redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, we have been pardoned by his blood as we are united to Christ in faith. We know that in Christ we have received the Holy Spirit who guides us, leads us, directs us, who informs us and and changes us and assures us that we are children of God. But even with those gifts, so often it's easy for us to wonder, man, am am I really a Christian? Am I really following Christ? Is He really first in my life? How can I know for sure that I am a son or I am a daughter of God? And so what we do there when, when we're looking for that type of assurance, where do we turn? Where do we look? Well, often we look at the means of grace that God gives us each and every day through His Word and through prayer. Maybe not as often as we should, but we know that that's where we want to go in order to have that assurance. We can talk to God in prayer. We can listen to God's voice as He speaks truth to us in His Word. And so we can turn to that for life and hope and for assurance that this grace that we need every day will be present in, with, and for us. But you know, so often we stop right there. And if we stop right there, then our reception of God's grace Our ability to live and to walk in it is limited by our own personal understanding, by the amount of time and energy that we can devote to the Word and prayer, by our own meager ability to be able to grasp the grace that exists in it. And so what we do when that's the case is we we reduce God's grace down to a former pardon down to this undeserved favor that that sort of begins the Christian life. And we think that we've got to do the rest ourselves. We don't find grace in, in the means that God gives us. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes our souls find more solace in singing songs than we do in the Word and in prayer. But you know, one of... God's greatest gifts to us, one that's far too often neglected, that Christ has granted to us as a gift so that we might live and walk in the grace of God is the church. And within the church, 
faithful shepherds and leaders who commend us to the word of God's grace. I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 says that Christ himself gave you apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints as to equip all believers for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until each and every single one of us attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And not just to kind of call ourselves Christians, but to mature manhood. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he does that so that we might not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather as we the church speak the truth in love to each other, we grow up into him who is our head, into Christ, until the whole body grows into his image. When each and every part, working properly, joined together in love, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As this is God's grace to you. And the Apostle Paul, he says that to the church in Ephesus so that they might know what gifts they have received in Christ already so that they might walk and live in His grace. He says, I have united you together in Christ. I have made you one. I have joined you together. My grace is being given to you through the church so that you can live in it. Well, our text this morning also comes from the Apostle Paul. And it's also given to the church in Ephesus. This time to the Ephesian elders. It was, this, this text was given before he wrote that letter. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's constrained by the Holy Spirit. He knows that imprisonment awaits him. He knows that he's never going to see their face again. And so he wants to commend them to God. He wants to entrust them to God and to the word of his grace so that they might continue on this ministry of the gospel of the grace of God, so that they might persevere in it and continue on what he has begun, so that that church can continue to walk and to live in God's grace. And what he calls them to here in this passage, he's going to reiterate later to the whole church in his letter to the Ephesians so that they might walk in grace. And so what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, is that we have been entrusted to the word of God's grace to faithfully shepherd, to fight wolves, and to feed his flock. We have been entrusted to the word of God's grace to faithfully shepherd, fight wolves, and feed his flock. And it is my hope and prayer that we would receive God's grace this morning as we look at his word from Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. It says, now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. 
serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as of any value or or precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. We have been entrusted to the word of God's grace, to faithfully shepherd, to fight wolves, and to feed his flock. To do that, we have to recognize, first and foremost, the need for faithful shepherds, the danger of fierce wolves, and the value of God's flock. And so first, the need for faithful shepherds. As I think that we would all recognize and admit that last words are important words, aren't they? I mean, if you think about it, if you had one last opportunity to gather with your loved ones, to to gather with those that you have poured so much of yourself into. And you had this one final opportunity to say one parting word to them, what would you say? What what truth, what what grace, what wisdom would you want to convey to them? What, What sentiments or affections would you desire to express? Or if you were there with someone whom you loved, whom you admired, who had poured so much of themselves into you. They are a dear father to you. 
and they have one final opportunity to say goodbye to you, what would you want to hear from them? And then, in light of what they said, those parting words, what would you do with them? I think we'd all be be prone to make those last words our first priority. We see that with Jesus and the disciples. Jesus' last words of the Great Commission, He said to them, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And so you go and you make disciples of all nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And and listen, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, the disciples took that and immediately they went out and they did just that. They started making disciples of all nations. These 12 men started out discipling others and you see people raised up. People like like Barnabas, people like Stephen, people like Philip who who come to, to faith in Christ and then those guys, guys like Stephen and Barnabas and others, they started making disciples too so that they started sharing the gospel with this guy named Saul. And Saul was converted on a road and became the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul then goes out, and what does he start doing? He makes disciples like no one else has ever made disciples before. He goes further than everyone else, right? Taking the gospel into new areas to make the glory of Christ known to them. He made that his ambition. And so here you see the generation after generation after generation, they're carrying on those last words of Jesus. They were his first priority. And we see that same thing with Paul and his last words. Here he is face to face with this group of disciples that he had spent himself on to establish and equip them in the faith to continue on the the good work that he had begun in them until it comes to completion in the day of Christ. And he impresses upon them their need for faithful shepherds. The danger of fierce wolves and the value of God's flock. And so here he is. He's one shepherd among many others. He knows this is his last opportunity. He has spent so much of himself just establishing them and equipping them to continue on this ministry. Many of them, many of them came to hear the gospel through him. He is literally their father in the faith. He says, I'm about to go, but this is what you need to know. This is how you are to shepherd the flock of God faithfully. This is what you you need to be about. And you can kind of almost get this sense that they're like grabbing their pen and paper. And they're leaning in. And so Paul comes up and he looks them in the eye and he says to them, This is what you need in order to shepherd the church of God faithfully. And he looks at them, they make eye contact, there's this glare, and he says, you need to be funny. You need to be good looking. You need to be a charismatic leader, right? You need to have lots and lots of book knowledge. You need to have an MBA. You need to have a keen business sense. You need to have a great marketing strategy. You need to have this great band that comes up and backs you up and like will entertain people and bring them in so that you can, can speak to them in new and fresh ways all of the things that they still want to hear. Now, you might find that assume, you know, just amusing, but I can't even tell you how many books 
Or how many speakers of com- at conferences, so-called leaders, who will tell you those same kinds of things? I can't even tell you how many churches have adopted a similar model, a similar strategy for ministry. But instead, Paul's parting words to these elders was to shepherd faithfully by imitating his godly character and continuing the ministry of the word that he had begun in Christ. He says there in verse 18, look, you know how I have lived among you the whole time, from the very first day that I set foot in Asia. There was this consistency in his life and in his ministry. He was there to serve the Lord, not himself. He was not about his glory. He was not about his name. In fact, he was there and he served the Lord with all humility and with tears. His heart would break as he preached the gospel to them. It was not about him. It was not about his glory. It was not about his comfort. Serving Christ was his first ambition. And he gave it even through the pain and heartache of ministry so that others might know the glory of Christ. He said, look, I I did that even in the midst of trials. Even when plots were made against me by people who considered themselves to be the people of God. He says, my life and ministry were the same. There in verse 20, both in public or in private. It didn't matter whether I was in the halls or I was in the synagogues or I was there in your very homes. I showed no partiality or preference towards any people group, no race or social status. I testified both to Jew and to Greek regardless of their status, regardless of their background. Here we see a man who was submissive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He was constrained by the Holy Spirit to make his way to Jerusalem. And even though he didn't know what would happen to him there, he did know clearly because the Holy Spirit testified that imprisonments and afflictions awaited him wherever he went. And still he went. But he does not count his life as of any value or precious to himself. Not because he has a death wish. Right? Not because he has some, just I, I just want it over with. I just want to die and go be with Jesus. But because he didn't value his life more than he did Christ. The gospel of the grace of God was that which was most valuable and most precious to him. See, the Paul didn't fear man. He didn't shrink back from teaching anything that was profitable for their souls. He worked hard, ministering to his own needs and graciously giving to the needs of others. Down in verse 33, he didn't covet silver or gold or apparel. He helped the weak, living in light of Christ's words, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. But not only do we see the priority of his Christ-like character, we also see Paul's priorities for faithful ministry, that he did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable for their souls. He wasn't telling them what their itching ears wanted to hear. He didn't avoid difficult or controversial issues. He didn't try to tiptoe around the truth and soft-pedal things uh, because people didn't like that message. 
We even saw last time in, in verses 1 through 16 that he preached really long sermons, right? And so, so he didn't shrink back from people in any way, not even so that you can get the good seats at the restaurant or make it home in time to watch the pregame. He spoke of the gravity of sin, but of the glory and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He wanted them to recognize the importance of resting in God. And he didn't just do this on Sunday. Teaching Christ was a way of life from him. He, he did it in public, but he also did it from house to house. Wherever he went, it was just, that was just part of who he was and part of what he did. He's always proclaiming, always declaring, always seeking to build up the body. He bore witness to all of their need for repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that we need every day to, to live is the grace that helps us to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from our thoughts, our plans, our ambitions, our ruling desires, those things that we really, really live for so that we can turn to God and find rest and hope and life and joy and peace in Him. It's trusting God that His will and His ways are our best. Paul understood that as a shepherd of God's flock, his course and ministry was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so he proclaimed the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self. He wasn't trying to build a, 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 an empire for himself. He was proclaiming Christ by preaching the whole counsel of God and by admonishing everyone. He's warning everyone, he's instructing everyone, he's exhorting everyone, as it says down in verse 31, night and day with tears. He did not admonish in order to belittle or in order to condemn. He didn't admonish so that he could exalt himself as far more righteous than all of the other people that he was speaking to. It pained him to the point of weeping, but he knew that it was necessary for their good. And friends, that, that ought to speak to us. When we think about the need that we have from time to time to admonish or to exhort or to rebuke a brother or sister in Christ, it ought to pain us. Not something that we delight in. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm smart, you're stupid, I'm good looking, you're ugly, whatever you want to throw in there. No, we admonish through tears. We admonish night or day, not when it's convenient, not when it fits into my nice knit schedule. Because we love that person. But we love them enough to tell them the truth. We don't let our, our tears prevent us from admonishing. Now Paul says all of this not to toot his own horn, but to charge these Ephesian elders to be careful to do the same. He wants them to continue on this ministry in his absence. He wants to see them be faithful shepherds, to, to guard their life and to guard their teaching, to imitate Him as He has labored so diligently to imitate Christ. He wants them to take the things that he, they have seen and heard in Him and to take those and to entrust them to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. 
as elders, or as maybe those who are here and maybe aspire to be an elder, Paul's godly character and faithful ministry are not meant to be understood as exceptional, but as the expectation for those who have been entrusted to God and to the word of His grace. Humility, compassion, hard work, impartiality, Christ-likeness, they are a must for the servant of God. Faithfulness to the whole counsel of God, bold proclamation, deep conviction, sorrowful admonition, and a submissiveness to Christ's call to preach the word of His grace regardless of what might happen. These are the commitments the man of God who is resolved to preach Christ must make. And only then, because he is marked by godly character and did not shrink back, could Paul say that he was innocent of their blood? It's a weighty, weighty thing to know that I stand here and I give an account for the blood of all of you. We must not fail to shepherd in a way that we can still maintain our innocence. To know that we have done our part. That we can wash our hands with a, a clear conscience that I've not shrunk back. I've not given over to fear. I've not lived in doubt. I, I, I've not given into immorality in any way. Not out of pride or heavy handedness, but out of deep humility and reverence for Christ. Now, you, you, you may never be an elder. But friends, this is why Christ gave you faithful shepherds. Because walking in the grace of God through the Christian life is not an individual event. It is not something that you can do on your own. That you have all that you need. That you are perfectly equipped all by yourself to just live you and Jesus. And to grow to the maturity like we see Paul calling us to in, say, the book of Ephesians. We need the church. We need leaders. It requires the, the godly example and the faithful teaching of those whom Christ has made apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that the church yourself included, might be equipped and trained up so that we can help one another grow to maturity in Christ. It's not just about you. It's about the church. And this is not an option for us if we are going to truly walk in the Word of God's grace. It's actually a necessity for us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Listen, remember your leaders... Those who spoke the word to you, the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And it says just a few verses later in chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with grumbling, for it would be of no advantage to you. If you refuse to be a part of the local church, if you refuse to submit to the leadership of your local church, you need to understand that from Hebrews 13, you are living in disobedience to God. This is not honoring Christ. It's not living in His grace. And, and, and please know that I'm not saying this so that I can domineer over you. I, I, I got enough to deal with as it is, folks. <laughs> and I often wonder how I'm doing. But let's face it. I mean, if you're, if you're standing there, you're just kind of like arms crossed and you're just like, standoffish, you'd be like, ah, forget that, I don't want that. You're like, do you actually think that I want that, right? You think that that's not going to be a lot of pain and a lot of tears for me? You think that that's not going to be a source of grumbling? But friends, more importantly than that, you need to know that it's of no advantage to you. I want you to be advantaged. I want you to be able to live and to walk in the grace of God as He would have you. And God says you need the church for that. It is actually a gift of God's grace to have godly elders who are willing to keep watch over your souls. Who are willing to faithfully shepherd you by preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. And so no matter what, where you are, where you find yourself, what, what member you happen to be in the body, let, we, we're all called to faithfully shepherd. We're all called to do our part to help this body grow in godly character and by devoting ourselves to the Word of His grace. It's exactly what you need. And so to walk in the grace of God, we all need faithful shepherding. But second, we also have to realize the danger of fierce wolves. Now, we all have this tendency to just kind of want to sit back and take it easy. We all have this tendency to just kind of want to coast through life and think that things are going to be fine, that it's all going to kind of work out, that as long as i got Jesus in my back pocket, then I'm basically good. It doesn't really matter. I can just kind of go through, do my own thing, live how I want to live, and everything's going to be fine. And we examine ourselves. We're just like, you know what? I'm, I'm basically good. I'm, I'm okay. And so what we do is we reduce, we, we minimize, or we make optional the graces that God gives us, and we ignore the dire warnings that God provides. And one of the dangers that we're most often ignorant of is the dangers of fierce wolves. That's why Paul warns these Ephesian elders in verses 28 through 31, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that my departure, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
Now again, Paul is saying this first and foremost to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he says that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, that is, pastor the flock. And so elder, overseer, pastor is one office. And he tells them a plurality of this one church in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Though Christ has obtained her by his own blood, That doesn't mean that we don't need shepherding. That we don't need the church. Because here's the thing. Sheep wander. And not only do sheep wander, but there are fierce wolves that are ready to devour. And so we must shepherd the flock carefully. We must keep watch over them diligently. We must be alert. We must pay careful attention. But in the church of God, shepherds are also sheep. As I say that, because often I think it's, we, we forget that. It's easy for us to, to develop this sort of us-them mentality of like, oh, you know, they're, they're men of God. They're elders. They're overseers. They don't need shepherding. And that's just not true. Now, shepherds are also sheep, which means that they too can drift away from the truth and become lost in sin and in error. Shepherds need shepherding too, which is another reason for a plurality of elders in every single local church. One shepherd pastoring a flock, if that one goes off, if they go wrong, if they go astray in any way, they can take the whole church with them. And I got to tell you, I've seen it happen many, many times. But a plurality provides accountability, it provides help, it provides that necessary shepherding that the whole church needs. So just like Paul, we need to be concerned about the attentiveness and the care for this flock in order to protect them from the dangers that would draw them away. Paul knows. In fact, he guarantees, after I leave, you know what's going to happen? Fierce wolves will come in. It's going to happen. He's not saying, boy, you know, be, be careful. Now, it, it might, it could maybe Maybe happen like a, like a one in a million, one in a billion chance. It might happen, but it might happen. So it will happen. The fierce wolves will come in from among them. People will arise, potentially even some of these elders speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And here's the thing about false teachers, fierce wolves. Nobody knows who they are. Right? They're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. In fact, most of the time, fierce wolves don't think that they're fierce wolves. They think that they're sheep. But yet, being off a degree or two, they're ready and willing to, to lead others astray. They're speaking twisted things and distortions and perversions. They're, they're drawing others away after them. You're not going to find a a fierce wolf come in and say, guess what, guys? I'm a wolf. Come with me so I can eat you. You're not going to find it. It's not going to happen. We're not going to know who they are. They might have, they might know a lot of Scripture. They might seem to be really wise and charismatic. 
They're not going to be the atheists or the agnostics because the Bible calls those folks fools and scoffers, right? Not wolves. Wolves are coming up from within the body. They're in the church and, and, and they won't just come in and make these off-the-wall claims that outright deny Christian truths. No, they will come in, they'll be a part of the church, maybe they'll be there for a long time, maybe even rise to the place where they're now in leadership and slowly and almost imperceptibly they drift away from the gospel. They subtly twist the truth of God and they distort truth to their own liking and it leads others to astray. And again, they can have a lot of head knowledge. More often than not, they're not outright denying Christ. No, often they're like the false teachers that Jude was dealing with when he said they've crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And they're not there saying, Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not the Christ, but by their lives, by the the twisting of their doctrine, they are denying His Lordship with their lives. And so Jude calls not just the elders, but to the entire church, and he says to them, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. All of you. And this is why Paul, for three years, had admonished and pleaded with everyone in tears, calling them back to the truth. Now you might hear that, and you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well then, how, how do we know, right? How, how do we identify wolves. How can we be sure that, that I'm, I'm not a wolf? Well, just like with faithful shepherds, we look at their life and we look at their doctrine. We can begin to identify wolves by looking at the antithesis of what we see here with Paul. In terms of life, are they truly godly? Right? Uh, do they want and strive to live for Him? Or is there inconsistency in the way they live? Now perhaps they, no one's going to deny, okay, yeah, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. But when you look at their lives, do you earnestly see a pursuit of holiness and righteousness and truth? Or, or do maybe they live one way in public and another way in private? They can stand up and they can talk a good game when they're looking at you from the pulpit, but when you go and you examine them behind closed doors, they're, they're doing all sorts of things. Instead of humility and gentleness, patience and love, there's pride and selfishness and a domineering attitude. Wolves use the church to gain for themselves and they're not willing to face persecution for the sake of God's flock. Wolves shrink back. They fear man. They might declare what is profitable, but only in a worldly sense, not in an eternal spiritual sense. Wolves show partiality. They favor some people over others. Wolves are constrained by their own appetites, by their desires, by their longings, by their feelings, not by the Holy Spirit. Wolves account their life of more value and more precious than Christ and His flock. Wolves will use the church to accomplish their own mission, their own course of action, their own ambition, rather than longing only to finish the ministry that they have received from Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Wolves covet silver and gold and apparel. They will demand the church provide beyond their necessities. They will ignore or abuse the weak. They will take rather than give. In terms of teaching, wolves won't teach hard truths that are eternally profitable. Instead, they won't call people to repentance and faith. They'll go light, make people feel okay about themselves. Wolves will proclaim their own kingdom and not the kingdom of Christ. But most importantly, wolves will not declare the whole counsel of God. Instead, they will speak twisted things. They will reduce, they will minimize, they will redefine, they will attempt to stand in authority over the Word of God. They will declare that we should allow culture to interpret Scripture rather than Scripture to interpret culture. They will pervert the grace of God into licentiousness. Hey, just live however you please. Do whatever you want. And with their lives, they will deny their only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Friends, we cannot say that doctrine doesn't matter. Assuming the truth and having little concern for doctrine has led many Many churches in our community, in our state, in our country, and throughout the world away from the gospel. The gospel itself is doctrine. This is a real and present danger even within this congregation. Friends, we can't say that truth and doctrine don't matter. We can't say that godly living is optional for any one of us. Every single person here has the potential to be a wolf. I mean, even the disciples, as dumb as they were when they were walking with Christ, understood that. I mean, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they, do, they weren't pointing fingers at that point. They were asking the question, is it me? They at least had enough humility to recognize that. Are we going to have enough humility in our lives and, and open ourselves up to the counsel and examination of others to a degree to recognize, you know what? There's a potential for me to be a wolf. And so we have to pay careful attention to ourselves and to all the flock of God. We must be alert lest we allow ourselves or others to twist the truth and to draw away disciples after us. Friends, you cannot walk in the grace of God while perverting it. Right? We want to walk in the grace of God, we've got to stay true to the grace of God. And this happens so often in churches, but, but most are so ignorant or assuming they can't even see what's happening until it's too late. And so we all have this responsibility to protect the flock of God, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, and to strive by God's grace to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Friends, don't remain in ignorance lest you lead others or you yourselves are led astray. Pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock of God. And so we have been entrusted to the word of God's grace to faithfully shepherd, to fight wolves and to feed his flock. But we won't do this unless we come to see third, the value 
of God's flock. Friends, it's easy in looking at this text. We don't have to look very hard to see how much Paul loved these Ephesian elders and how much they loved Paul. I mean, in verses 36 through 38, you see they're praying together. They're weeping. They're hugging and kissing one another. And that makes us uncomfortable, right? We want to kind of twist that and change that into like a, a mighty fist bump or a firm handshake for Jesus, you know, whatever you want to do. But it's like th- this is evidence that they are dear brothers, that they cared deeply for one another. And if you read through Paul's letters, then you can see that Paul didn't just feel this way about this small group of leaders from this one particular church. This is actually how Paul felt about all of the churches. But we've got to ask ourselves, why? Why did Paul feel this way about the church? And why did they feel that way about Paul? Well, As Christians, we love what God loves, and we value what we invest in. When we grow in our knowledge of God, we begin to value what God values. We begin to love what God loves. You see, this church in Ephesus, this group of elders, this was not just some voluntary organization. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll join no biggie. This was not understood as, a, as a, a weekly worship service or an occasional Bible study that I would attend so that I could learn more about Jesus. This wasn't a group of guys that Paul labored together with in the gospel just like some co-worker at your office or some fellow student in one of your classes. He says there in verse 28, this is the church of God. This is the church of God. This is God's church. These are God's people. These are citizens, fellow citizens with the saints in the kingdom of Christ. This is God's family. He In Christ, when we are in Christ, God becomes our Father, and we become His children. God sheds His love on us, on each one of you and me, just all of the same, His love on us, and we we love Him, and because God, I love God, and God loves me, and God loves you, I want to love you because you are my sibling, right? Because God loves you, and so I want to love you because God loves me, and I love Him. And so we're family, not because I had this really close, like, mm, intimate connection between you. Because, like, if you grew up in a family with a, with a lot of siblings, you know, you probably would say, you know, if I had my pick, I wouldn't pick him or her. But yet I love them. I love them because they're family. Because they're my family. Because we share parents. They're my family. I love them. We love because we are united in Christ. And, and more than that... Christ obtained this family with his own blood. God willingly gave up his one and only son who lived a perfect life, life that you and I could never live. On many occasions, he spoke publicly to people. His voice 
thundering from the heavens, his glory shining upon the mountain so that we would know this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that son gave up his life as a sacrifice for us, for our sin. His life paid the ransom, the penalty that our sin deserve. And he rose three days later so that we might have life in his name, so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters into God's family, that we are now his, we are his children, and we can rest assured in that because Christ has obtained this church with his own blood. God gave that which is most precious, most valuable for you and for me. Friends, this is huge. We get this so, so backward. You know, we think that God kind of gives us this illustration of family like a little picture of stick figures drawn with crayon to, to hang up on your fridge as some feeble expression of his love for us and how we ought to love one another. But then we go and we kind of look at my family, like my, my biological family, and we say, you know what, that's my blood. You know, I, I, I love my family because they're my blood, they're my kin, they're my people. And yeah, yeah, the church, you know, that's God's family over there. And, and I'm supposed to understand them like my family, but I love my family. I love my kin. And that's the church now. I could take it or leave it because that's not really my blood. This is my blood. That's not my blood. But you know what God says to that? No, it's my blood. This is my blood. You are my blood. They are my blood. We've got to get that because as much, as great a gift as, as it is to have a family, to have a biological family that is your blood and you get to experience that and you get to love them and it is a wonderful thing, that biological family is only a foreshadowing of our true family in Christ. It's not my family is greater than the church. It's that God's family is greater than us all. We've got to get that. He's not saying, oh, no, don't love your family. No, love your family, but love them in, in connection with my family. Love them, love my family like you love your family, not like a bunch of strangers that you could care less about. When you see one another. I mean, you take an honest look around the room. Do you see brother? Do you see sister? Do you see the blood of Christ? As we should. It's what God intends for us. That's how we're to live together. And so we love them. If we value the blood of Christ that saved us from our sin, we will value one another. If we love Jesus, we will love one another because we're in Jesus. We can't look at one another without seeing the family of God which Christ obtained with his own blood. So we don't despise our elder brother because we know that Christ himself gave the church him as an overseer. The Holy Spirit appointed him 
as our overseer? I mean, isn't that what the Apostle John said? Isn't that what Christ himself taught? That, that if we love God, we will love one another. And we love the family of God and we strive to care for the church because he obtained it with his own blood. The church is precious because Christ is precious. And i got to tell you if, you, if you don't see the church as precious, if, you don't, if you're not able to see this, what does that say about the value that you place upon Christ? We said this in our Membership Matters class just yesterday, that the church of God makes the gospel visible. That we are to live together in such a way that when people outside the church look in upon us, they are able to see Jesus. This is why Paul could bear to leave his, his beloved church behind because as much as he loved the church, he knew that God loved her more. And he could entrust the church to God and to the word of his grace because he knew the love of God and that God would continue to be at work to build her up and to give her the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And we want that for each other. And so that's why we love and how we love one another in such a way that we build one another up and we help one another to see this inheritance that we've been given. And so if we love God, we will love each other. We will love what he loves. But from a much more sort of practical, horizontal level, we will also value what we invest in. It's not really surprising to us, or it shouldn't be, but the more time that you spend, the more effort you, you invest into something, the more you pour yourself into it, the more you care about it. We know this to be true on a practical level. And, and two of the biggest reasons why people don't value the church is because one, they don't see it the way that God sees it. And two, when they do come, they come to receive and not to give. If Paul had, had just shown up from time to time, synagogues or whatever, just kind of hit or miss, not really involved, not really engaged, he wouldn't have been having this conversation with the Ephesian elders. But he loved these people and he commended them to God because he had invested so heavily in them. He served the Lord with tears and through trials. He, he did not shrink back from teaching in any way. He was willing to spend and to be spent for their souls. He labored hard to provide for himself and for others. He helped the weak that in no way could repay. And his life was an embodiment of Christ's life and Christ's words in verse 35 that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did you hear that? That it is more blessed to give than to receive. Our Lord Jesus said that you will benefit more. You will be able to experience the grace that I have already given you more fully. You will find yourself more content and even beyond that, more happy in Jesus when you give rather and sitting back trying to receive. 
And friends, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why we find ourselves so often wondering where is the grace of God in addition to our not seeing God's grace for what it is is because we are sitting back waiting to receive more and more and more and more when God is saying you will experience when you give of yourself. The more, and we know this is true, right? The more I invest in my marriage, the closer I feel to my wife. The more time that I spend with my kids, the more that we are able to delight in one another's love. The more time I spend in the Word of, in God, of God and in prayer, the more I am able to see Jesus. And the more that I pour myself out, as often weak and empty as I might feel on this church, the more I know that the grace of God is sufficient for me. That His power is perfectly displayed in my weakness. Perhaps the grace that you have been so anxiously longing for will be found not as you wait to receive, but as you love what God loves. And you invest in, you value, you commit yourself to that thing. Friends, these are means that God gives us so that we might live in grace. But if you don't see the need for faithful shepherds to keep watch over your souls, if you don't realize the danger of fierce wolves that could draw Christ's people away, and if you do not see the value of God's flock, then you will miss out on the means of God's grace that He gives to you to help you to be happy in Jesus. To grow in maturity in Christ. To finish the course that each and every one of us has received from the Lord Jesus. Friends, I say this because just like Paul, I want to commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So let us shepherd faithfully. Let us fight off the wolves and let us feed the precious flock of God that he has obtained with his own blood. Let's pray.